This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, this is 15-Minute History, a podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. I'm Joan Neuberger, professor in the Department of History and editor of Not Even Past. Today we're here with Jeremy Surrey. Jeremy is a professor in the Department of History and the LBJ School of Public Affairs, and he specializes in international history. Uh, hi, Jeremy. Hi, Joan. Today we're going to talk about the United States' entrance into World War I. So uh, let's just start at the beginning. While the war was going on in Europe, it began in 1914, mm-hmm. right. uh, and it lasted uh, all the way into 1917, while the U.S. was still not involved in the war. The U.S. had a policy of neutrality. Right. What, what did that mean? So American neutrality uh, in that period from 1914 to 1917 was seen by Americans at the time as the standard American position going back to George Washington. George Washington had famously said in his farewell address of uh, 1796 that the United States should not have any permanent alliances and it should remain aloof from the wars of Europe. He's speaking at that point of the beginnings of what become the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, in Europe. And so this was a standard American position, not to join either side. Neutrality meant that we claimed the right to trade with anyone we wanted to trade with, that we claimed the right to loan money to anyone we wanted to loan money to, and that we should have freedom of uh, intercourse, which is to say the ability to travel, the ability to interact, the ability to work with anyone we wished to work with. And that's the position that Americans quite naturally take. It's not even an argument in 1914. That is the standard American position on foreign wars. Mm -hmm. So then uh, what happened to change that and to bring an end to neutrality? Well, neutrality works far better in principle than it does in practice. And that's also an old story in 1914. The War of 1812 was, in fact, over the fact that the United States wanted to assert neutrality, and the British said no. The British position, and the position of most other belligerents in Europe, was that if we are fighting uh, another country, those who are our friends cannot trade with our enemies. The British did not want the United States in 1812 trading with France, and the British did not want the United States in 1914 trading with Germany. And by the same token, the Germans didn't want the United States trading with Great Britain. It was made even more of a difficult issue because not only was the United States trading a lot with all the belligerents, for instance, selling cotton for uniforms to all of the belligerents in Europe in 1914, the United States was loaning money to all of them. The United States had a surplus of money at that time, and people like J.P. Morgan and others made a lot of money by loaning their cash to foreign countries who paid high interest rates on it. And so the United States was loaning money to Great Britain and Germany and other belligerents that they were using in the war. For obvious reasons, uh, the British did not like the United States doing that. And so from really uh, the summer of 1914 on, the British used what they call orders in council to claim the right to stop American shipping. And they control the seas, especially in the Atlantic, and so they're able to do this. This poses a real problem for Germany because it cuts off much of American trade to Germany and it cuts off much of American capital to Germany. So by the end of 1914, early 1915, what the the British have done is shifted American trade to them. It's not American policy. The British have made that happen in practice. The United States protests, but we cannot do anything about it. And so what... um what did Germany do? Right. How did Germany respond? Well, that, uh, great question. So the Germans actually seek to break what they believe is an unfair blockade on their trade. They do not have the surface ships that are capable of doing this. So what they do is they invent and invest in submarines. 
what are called U-boats at the time, but they're really just small submarines, uh, very small. No one would want to go in one today. <laughs> um, and what they tried to do with the submarines is basically destroy shipping going to Great Britain. The German position is if we can't get American trade, the British shouldn't be able to get it either. The Germans believe, and they're not wrong, that they're winning the war on the ground and that they will win if the British don't have a supply of food and arms from the United States. So they want to cut that off. And they begin torpedoing uh, American ships. And uh, there's a particular moment when this reaches ahead, which is uh, May 7th, 1915, which is the sinking of the Lusitania. And this, uh, for decades, was a big controversy. Uh, why was the Lusitania sunk? What was it carrying? Who was on it? Um, a number of historians, after the fact, went and asked uh, people, did oral histories with people who were still alive from that time, when a lot of them were still alive. And people in the United States remembered the sinking of the Lusitania in the way a later generation remembered the killing of John F. Kennedy. People remembered where they were when they heard that Kennedy was shot. They remembered where they were when they saw the headlines at that time about the sinking of the Lusitania. It was an American passenger ship. And the sinking of it resulted in the deaths of hundreds of Americans. And the question was, uh, why did this happen? Now, the Lusitania was also carrying um, gun cartridges as well. And so the Germans claimed it, it actually had contraband on it. Woodrow Wilson, the president of the United States, accused the Germans of barbarity, of violating the uh, protections for innocent civilians. The Germans said they were just doing what the British were doing, but... The Germans were killing Americans, the British were not. And that made a big difference in the situation. But that was still 1915, so there were quite a few more years before uh, we actually went into the war. Absolutely. I mean, what it shows is despite the American anger, and it was widespread across parties, Americans were still committed to staying out of the war. And President Woodrow Wilson had to get reelected in 1916, and he did not want to run as the president who brought the United States into the war. So he ran on a peace platform that he would keep the United States out. He, in fact, said, we were too proud to fight. But what the Lusitania sinking did, Joan, was that it turned American opinion against Germany. We shouldn't assume that Americans would have been favorably inclined toward Britain. Maybe so, but there were plenty of German Americans in the United States. There were plenty of people who disliked British domination of trade and domination of uh, its empire and insurance and all sorts of other industries. But this sinking of the Lusitania, combined with British propaganda about it, shifted American opinion. And what historians argue now is that from 1915 on, the United States is neutral but not equally neutral. We're showing more and more favoritism to Great Britain in terms of popular opinion. And that puts pressure on Woodrow Wilson. Uh, and particularly then in 1917, in early 1917, when the Germans increased their U-boat attacks again, and they do this because they're beginning to run out of supplies themselves. The Germans are beginning to starve, quite literally. And they want to end the war quickly. And on the ground in Europe, they launch a new offensive. As part of that offensive, they try to cut off American shipping again. And so adding that moment to the prior moment two years ago when we had these attacks, Americans begin to say we cannot tolerate this any longer. Mm -hmm. Famously, one newspaper, I think it's a Philadelphia newspaper at the time, says uh, the only difference between war and peace now is that we're not fighting back and the Germans are attacking us. So what is the Zimmerman telegram? Right. Why is that important? The Zimmerman telegram is another one of these issues that's long been a point of, uh, of uh, controversy. Among historians. Among historians, yes. Uh, well, students always love to talk about it, too. Uh, Alfred Zimmerman was the German foreign minister, uh, sends a telegram to uh, Mexico. 
And what he's seeking to do is actually put pressure on the United States. He's not actually seeking to go to war with the United States, but he's trying to warn Wilson not to take stronger action against Germany. And then Telegram alludes to the possibility that if the Mexicans helped the Germans, the Germans might help the Mexicans raise claims for land they lost in 1848. Remember, this is only 60 years after the Mexican-American War. And those lands, by the way, are California, New Mexico, Arizona, even a little bit of Texas. And uh, so the claim here is that the Germans will help the Mexicans with this. The British intercept the telegram and wait to release it. And they release it just when the submarine attacks increase again. And they use it to basically show the American public that the Germans really cannot be trusted. The telegram was real but the British exaggerated what was in it for effect. And that contributes, in addition to the submarine attacks, to more and more American anti-German feeling. By early 1917, many Americans think that the Germans are fighting in an uncivilized way and that this threatens the long-term interests of the United States. So then what does President Wilson do at that point? It, this, this, I think, Joan, is one of the most fascinating moments uh, in the history of war in the United States because uh, Woodrow Wilson is still not sure. He is deeply committed to staying out of the war. He does not want to go into this war. But he also uh, comes to believe in his own terms that the world is careening out of control, that the nature of war is changing and the United States has to do something. And he takes it upon himself to try to figure this out. So he begins to talk about uh, new war aims, and eventually this will become the basis for the 14 points speech that he gives. Um, And uh, he sits alone in the White House and tries to decide what to do and writes his own speech. He delivers the speech on the 2nd of April, 1917, to Congress. And when he goes to Congress, they don't know what he's actually going to ask for. And in fact, it looks like he could have carried Congress either way, for war or against war. He makes an argument for war. And his fundamental argument is that the world must be made safe for democracy. The world must be made safe for democracy. The powers in the world are moving in a direction that will make democracy unsurvivable. And that is his argument for the United States, getting into war on the side of Great Britain. The United States will not ally with Great Britain. We become an associate power. We still refuse to say that we are going to fight fully on the side of the Europeans. We don't want to defend empire, he says. We want to defeat the most threatening regime that he sees as Germany and then help rebuild the international system. There's a big debate. Uh, This is an important point. Uh, Americans always debate war. World War II is the only exception. Every war in American history has been controversial. This one was super controversial. A number of senators and members of the House vote against it. Many Americans protest against our entering the war. Uh, And then what happens when we do enter the war? How does that change the course of the war? It changes it significantly because what it means is that uh, the British and the French now have an almost uh, unending supply of food an almost unending supply of weapons, and a lot of people. Our soldiers are poorly trained, but they're still there. They can, they can fight. And this demoralizes the Germans, makes it clear to the German military leadership that they cannot win in the West. They still push east. And of course, the fighting in the east is even worse than in the West. But they come to conclude that they're never going to win in the West at that moment. They'll later deny this and claim they were stabbed in the back. But the elites in Germany clearly see now uh, that they're going to to lose, or at least not win the war in the West. Uh, okay, so once the war is over, uh, well, before the war started, America was in a, a period known as the Progressive Era. Right. Um, how does the the four years of or the four years of war in Europe and the year and a half that we were in the war um, change the Progressive Era? It it really brings the Progressive Era to an end. 
And in some ways, it's unfortunate because the progressive era had so many creative impulses uh, for political reform in so many different directions. It wasn't Democrat or Republican. In a sense, both Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, two rivals, were both progressives. So many intellectuals were progressives. Progressivism was about trying to bring the best ideas together with the best functioning government to make people's lives better. Not big government, but better government. So it's the progressive era that creates many of the urban sanitation enterprises that we know, anti-poverty measures that involve public and private partnerships, all kinds of new education ideas, the spread of kindergarten as, a, as an almost required element for uh, early, early child education. That comes from this period. Notions of Social Security and other things are actually first experimented with in states like Wisconsin and later used in the New Deal. What World War I does is it pulls the United States away from these progressive impulses, not because anyone decides they're bad, but because the attention turns elsewhere. The attention turns international. And one of the tensions in American history is always between the domestic and the international. Wilson and most American energy now looks overseas, not at home. And many of these progressive impulses have to be put on hold because the U.S. government has to do two things it hasn't done in a long time, basically since the Civil War. It has to mobilize a large army and it has to use intellectuals and other experts to help figure out how to fight the war. So people, quite literally, Joan, who are working on education and urban reform get pulled into working on military issues. And that really brings the end of this era. There is also at the end of the war, 1918, 1919, a period of terrible intolerance in the United States, fears uh, that Bolshevik revolutionaries and others uh, who emerge in Europe out of the war, at least they emerge on the American radar screen because of what's going on uh, in the war in Europe, uh, there's a fear that they're coming to our country as well. And so many uh, good patriotic Americans who were arguing for reform, they're seen now as threatening. They're seen as too radical. And this is the beginnings of the so-called Palmer Raid, named for Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer, and the beginnings of the FBI. The FBI is created as an anti-communist, anti-radical uh, institution in 1919-1920. Uh, great. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Thank you, John. If you have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to have us talk about on an upcoming episode of 15-Minute History, go to our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History, that's 1-5-Minute History, and click on the Contact Us link in the right sidebar. The opinions and views expressed in today's episode are not representative of the University of Texas at Austin or any of its constituent bodies and are solely those of the people who spoke them.